Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. And from the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast informs, educates, and illuminates the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Charlotte. For our guest today, please welcome Andrew Wright. Andrew is the president of Wright Architects since 1986 in Kingston, New York. Wright Architects specializes in architecture and construction assistance of homes, offices, institutional buildings, sustainable projects and developments across the United States, Virgin Islands, and abroad. Their projects range uh, from elegant small additions and renovations to large, complex new buildings. And since their inception, they've uh, demonstrated a full, for sure, full spectrum of facilities from purchase of property to interior design. For more information, feel free to visit rightarchitectsplllc.com. Again, rightarchitectsplllc.com. Andrew, hello. We're honored and really excited to have you on the Modern Architect Show today. Well, thank you, Tom. And uh, that was quite a nice introduction. I'm actually feeling a little prickly. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's well-deserved. You know, Andrew, um, in seeing your website and looking at the, a number of the projects you've done, you know what? Something I discovered, and you correct me if you think I'm wrong, is I noticed you have a great range from the modern to Usonian to just a great range. And I don't know if that's by design or your skill set or can you share with me again, if you say, Tom, no, we are this style, correct me, but it's really, I really appreciate your, uh, your great range and your, uh, your design. Well, well, thank you. Yes. It's a, um, you know, you, you, it's kind of interesting when, when you've been doing it as long as I have, you think you're in one style and inevitably what happens, you go back and you look and say, oh, I did that. <laughs> oh, I did that. But it's driven by, and I'm sure other architects agree, by what is what is the client asking. And it's a blast to try and, and capture their vision for them because, after all, you know, we finish up the project, we get it built, and, and it's theirs. And so if you can help your client own it, and love it, then it's a much better thing, and they invite you over for dinner more often. <laughs> That's a great thing. Yeah. So, Andrew, what were 
or are continue your early inspirations for uh, how you chose to be an architect? If there were any galvanizing moments or a moment in your life as far back as you can recall to where you, you know, kind of look at where you are now and say, you know what? I kind of saw where I was going to be, which is where I am now. But, you know, at what, what age or what time period in your life? Well, I grew up in Chicago on the south side. My dad was a professor at University of Chicago. And Chicago's kind of known for its oh, yeah. variety and depth of architecture. Every architectural you know, school ends up doing a field trip there. And there I was in the south side, a few blocks away from the Roby House. Uh, uh-huh. So you had uh-huh. Saarinen, you had uh, Darrell Stone, you had Frank Lloyd Wright, Keck and Keck. You had all these great architects who had built these homes and buildings for the university. You had the university itself, which is a beautiful Gothic limestone uh, facility. So imagine being around all this stuff, and <laughs> I would walk by the Roby House and look at it. I said, God, why, why do I stop and I stare at that? What, what's going on here? Then you couple that with my father being a professor, living in a 1890s house. We, I was the super. Uh, really? <laughs> I would fix things. <laughs> well, you know, this thing would break, that thing would break. He and I would go hit it with a hammer and <laughs> fix it and rewire it and replumb it. And so you kind of grow up knowing how to keep this old, this old girl going. <laughs> and uh, then I found myself gravitating into the shop in school and. I just love building. And so uh, when I finally graduated, I'd taken drafting classes and it sort of dawned on me, see, I'm a pretty good builder. Well, I didn't want to go into a trade school, so let's see if there's something that's close and architecture was good. So off I went to Iowa State uh, to get an engineering architectural background. Oh, and nice. it just just caught like a like a bug. <laughs> okay. So so it actually and it's definitely happens at an early age. What, you know, currently, what even in, continues to inspire you now, whether it's personal or professional? In our field, we are very competitive. And we're also, as I said earlier uh, to your associate, is, you know, a big part of architecture is history. We look at what's what's happened, what's going on, and we try to figure out what's going to happen. But as I see publications come out as I see new buildings go up, as I see what's going on in Europe, what's going on in Asia, I get ideas and I get uh, I get excited because we're continually given problems to solve. We have clients, we have uh, who, I need this, I need that, <clears throat> and it's not out there. So you got to start going back to your, to your knowledge base. You got to start digging. And so to put it politely, we love to steal from each other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so honest. That's And that stealing is, have you seen examples of your work being stolen? Actually, it's ironic. I have. You have. I have. And at first, you know, you would think, oh, I'm shocked. Oh, I'm irritated. <laughs> but it was two or three people who had been with me a while and I trained them. And then inevitably, like all children, they go on to have their own life. They start their firm. And then I'm getting calls from people saying, I love that building you did in such and such a place. I said, I didn't do a building there. And I go online, and I said, holy cow, those are my details. And I actually felt, I had a warm, fuzzy feeling about it. It actually, you know, like when, when a child goes off and, you know, is the valedictorian, you, you feel you feel good about it. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so, so. <laughs> so it's not stealing, it's you're being the mentor and being complimented. 
I'm good with that because that means I must have done something good. What is it they say that uh, imitation is uh, the greatest flattery or something? Yes, like that? yes, sincerest form of flattery or copying and, and replication. And it is. It really is. I'm sure, you know, uh, um, even with Frank Lloyd Wright and the greats who were a little crazy and, and weird personalities, when he saw his disciples going out and, and taking his prairie theory and, and uh, his unisonian, he had to feel, he had a good feeling inside. I mean, it just has to. It's, it's a, Especially if you like the person. If you don't, well, then you get all crazy. Yeah, the, the, union, the unisonian, I, I love how you did that. You really... Um, we're looking on your website, so our audience is, doesn't have the uh, the luxury to do so. But for now, at least, share with us. You know, how do you do it so well? Well, thank you. It's you got to remember. My last name is Wright. Uh-huh. I grew up in Chicago. Oh, my logo, yeah. My, my logo is a red square, and I got a funny little story. You know, Edgar Taffel was one of Frank Lloyd Wright's better disciples. He did a lot of books on him. He wrote about him, and I met him in Manhattan back in the 80s. And, you know, I shook the hand of the man who shook the hand, so I was very impressed. And I wrote him a thank you note on my letterhead, which had Wright Architects Red Square. He immediately sent me this scathing letter that, how dare I use the master's oh. logo? They're going to sue me. And I said, please do. I could use the publicity. Oh, <laughs> did you really? It's fabulous. <laughs> but, the, but here's what it turned out is that, you know, so in my early work, I was severely Unisonian Prairie to a fault because I would think in that, I would think in those ordering systems. When you walk through his houses, I used to break into the Roby house. You know that house was abandoned for many years? Yes, yes. It was just boarded up, and so I would sneak in. And I'd walk around inside, and I would see the living room, and I would see the the dining room, and the and the, the just the way spaces went together. And you ask yourself, why can't I stop looking at this? Well, what what makes me feel something as I walk into it, which is pretty much the essence of what he did. And he was five foot tall. I'm six foot four, <laughs> so I wasn't quite able to get his direct proportions. But but it was just that whole. When you walk into a space and you feel something, you have to stop and say, why am I feeling something? What is it about this is creating this? And that's where it all sort of spun from, is how to pay attention to that and how to emulate it. Can you touch again, Andrew, on that feel something? Because now I'm I'm seeing a lot of your projects. You feel something with every project. It's not just the, the home or the residential. Is that something that you not just strive for, but you even... I don't know. Is it just part of your DNA now? Well, you know, we build 90% of our projects. I'm a design builder. In other words, I actually hire the plumber, hire the electrician, and I'm the job foreman. So I'm walking around, putting every stud up. I'm doing the layout. I'm telling the plumber how to do his pipes. And so inevitably it does become part of my DNA. I actually, this is going to sound weird, Tom, but I (laughs) will forget a client's name but I will remember where every pipe in their wall is. Oh, no. <laughs> 20 years later, they'll call me up and say, I want to put a big shelving unit on this wall. And I'll say, okay, start 24 inches off the corner, or you're going to hit a main. <laughs> and so it's, it's just strange how, you know how people's minds can be re- really good in math, but they can't structure a sentence? Correct. Yeah. Or people have this great memory in one thing, but not another. I'm sort of that way with a building. I can remember everything I've built, and as you build it, when you do design build, I can adjust it a little bit this way or that way to make it feel 
to hit that sweet spot. And it is sort of an instinct. It's odd, but I, it, that's really what it is. Oh, I don't know if it's odd. I think it's terrific. Now, the, the design build, there are a number of builders, at least here in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, that call themselves design build, and they really aren't. And what I mean by that is they may be predominantly they're builders and they outsource the design, which is fine, but they're calling themselves, you know, a complete. What are your thoughts on that? Or I don't know if it's prevalent uh, it, back east as well. It, no, it's very common. Okay. And the reason... I opened up uh, the last firm I worked for before I went on my own. We were creating design build, the real thing, where we had a construction arm in our company, and I really enjoyed it. It was a I worked for a guy named Chip Kane, who was really forward thinking. You know, cut the contractor out, work on a you know cost plus, and you can work twice as fast and save your client ten fifteen percent, and it was great. So then from that standpoint, when I first went on my own, I literally had a tool belt on because I had no clients, and I started doing people's lofts and uh, restaurants and occasionally was paid. But the uh, you learn a lot. When you do the layout, you sit with the carpenters, you sit with the electricians, and you do it together, and it's the real deal. And there was a company called Jersey Devils that were doing that out here on the East Coast. It was a bunch of architects who literally put on their tool belts and went. Well, as the years go on, design build became sort of a catchphrase for architects who wanted to get more involved in arranging the construction management of things. And it gave a little more control, but if you didn't really know how to do it yourself, it could be challenging, and it could, you know, what are you going to do when you come to a site condition problem, or a, especially on a renovation? Do you know how to handle rotted primary beams and shore up the house and get this thing done? So, you know, it does get watered down, but from 86 to now, it has now become a mainstay of our industry. It would never existed before that an architect would try to pretend they were a builder. So I'm kind of encouraged because it makes you a better architect if you know how to build. You're not going to design something impossible. So, you know, you have to sort of have an open view about it. I'm glad. I'm glad it's happening, but I'm also, you know, weary of what does this person really know? What's your thoughts on design development, architects as developers? I know it's a bit off topic, but... uh, No, no, uh, that's what I do that too. John Portman, who did all the uh, Atlanta, what were those called? Those Atlanta buildings, uh, the Peach Plaza, I think it was. He was one of the first, and they were very beautiful modern buildings uh, for Hyatt Regency and such. And he was one of the first to be on the development side of a project. And he did everything in concrete, round buildings, and they were pretty cool. This is back in the 80s, I think, late 70s, 80s. And I always thought, hmm, that's an interesting fact. Now, here's the reality about architecture. It's not a good business to get into if money is a big issue in your life, if you want to have a lot of it. So there's not a, you know, there's not a real retirement plan out there for most architects. So you work until you drop. Well, if you sort of develop a little bit, buy a building, fix it up, rent it out, it gives you sort of a an afterlife. It gives you a bit of a savings account for down the road. So it's become more prevalent. Now, typically, architects who become developers work with a large group that's financial and it designs in committee, and inevitably the design gets watered down because it's budget-driven. 
we do it, and I know other people do it, where I'm buying a little building, it's within budget, now I can fool with it and make it what I want. So if I overspend, well, you know, shame on me, but at least I can be proud of it. So that's kind of like the paradox. And in, here I am in Kingston, where, as I said earlier, it's from the 1680s, had these beautiful old buildings, which you buy them, they're underperforming, they're in bad shape, you give them some love, you fix them up, now you've brought it back to life. And there it sits, and you rent it out, and then you just park it and do another one, do another one. Nothing crazy, nothing fast, but it's sort of nice when you, um, when, how do they say, when you make money while you're sleeping. Oh, yeah, you're literally doing that. Now, also, have you ever just um, got a bit analytical with it and said, you know what, uh, since you were in, uh, I'll use the word command, <laughs> command of the project the, from beginning to end, you're able to actually realize greater profitability than a developer who's going to be more budget centric because exactly. you're yes i mean you can't always quantify that on a, on a spreadsheet especially before it's complete but the developers the few that i do know that uh, really value architecture or who are architects if you put their projects next to any just developer project with that budget centric mindset and uh, action Oh, it blows it away in a very short time. Not only that, it becomes a, a, a quite a bit of a legacy building. It uh, well, you know, and here's the funny thing: there's many ways to measure a profit. And yes, I will sometimes overspend what I, sh I you know, I'll, I'll put beautiful building closets and washer dryers and everything in every unit. But I know that I'll always have a tenant, and I'll know that they'll be happy, and I won't have to go and maintain it or take care of it. So in that case, that's another kind of profit. Where if it's, uh, you're right, these big uh, developing companies that are using pension money or whatever, they have to hit their numbers dead on. But there's another little factor, and that is, as architects, there's a whole variety of us out there, and in any field, actually. And most anybody can come up with an 80% solution, whether it's working for a client, working for themselves on a project. I worked for a great guy in St. Louis who taught me how to go for a 90% solution, a 95%. You know, push the envelope so that when you're done, you gave it your best of what you could do. And Design Build gave me that flexibility that I could be in the middle of a design and make a, a, an adjustment without costing any time or money to the client, which sort of got me up to that level of perfection, which I've... You know, I sound like I'm bragging uncontrollably, but Please it's do. kind of what drives me. It's what drives me. It's like, you know, why not? We do this once. Let's do it right. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of, you're right, Mr. Wright. We'll go right into a station ID uh, after that note. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. The Stanford Archive of Recorded Sound is a wonderful resource for those interested in classical music and jazz. The archive contains thousands of historical recordings and numerous collections of printed materials. It's located in Braun Music Center on the Stanford campus. To learn how you can take advantage of all the archive offers, visit it on the web at lib.stanford.edu forward slash ARS. You don't even have to be here to go there. It's great. <laughs> We're talking today with Andrew Wright president of Wright Architects in Kingston, New York. For more information, feel free to visit WrightArchitectsPLLC.com. Again, WrightArchitectsPLLC.com. Andrew, what, uh, 
recent projects have you worked on or are working on, if you're at liberty to share with us? I am. And, uh, and uh, our greatest accomplishment in the last five years is we've been going very heavily into sustainable work. We did a historic, we did a geothermal residence in Manhattan, which was inside a historic Richard Morris Hunt brownstone, right on the Upper East Side, where I drilled a thousand foot well underneath this house. Oh, it took seven permits. I was within a hundred feet of the subway system. I had to get a letter of approval from the Office of Historic Preservation because 73rd Street used to be a river and the Indians who habited, you know, before we got there used to bury their dead on the side of the river. So they had to make sure there was no artifacts. I mean, it was an interesting deal, but you can imagine a beautiful 15,000 foot brownstone with no compressors, no fans whirling and making noise and being very comfortable. It was very cool. Uh, that one was one. And then we just finished the largest residential microgrid uh, in the world in Tuxedo Park, New York. A microgrid, so I can tell you, is when you go completely off-grid. It was a 20,000-square-foot 1928 mansion with guest house, two pools, koi pond, barns, and we originally went into this project to just do a net meter, you know, where you create as much energy as you use and you send your electricity to the local utility company. But when the utility company realized I was sending 290 kilowatts of power their way, <laughs> they were a little afraid and they wanted me to give them a million dollars to upgrade their infrastructure to handle it. <laughs> So for half a million dollars, I bought a bunch of batteries, and I just cut the wire. <laughs> and so it's an independent and very cool project where you have hot water being developed for the pools and the hot water solar panels. We have a 1,000 PV panels producing electricity on a day like today. We have 30 geothermal wells scattered around his yard that give us extremely low energy heat and cooling. And then we insulated the windows and just, you know, made this house as tight as possible. LED bulbs, the usual stuff, and it's working beautifully. So we're very proud of that one. Yeah, I noticed that that historical uh, preservation that it looks like, well, you know, I want to say you specialize in it, but I see it looks like you specialize in everything. Or at least everything looks really good. And I know I'm, I'm not even patting you on the back. I'm lit almost you know, slapping you on the back. But it's true. I mean, at least from what I can see or we can see over here at uh, Stanford. Oh, come out east. Come out east. I need you here. <laughs> oh, really? oh, no, it's just, it's remarkable to see that. And I think, I, you know, I don't, I don't think your website, even some of the other um, PR pieces, capture all the, the work, the breadth of the work that you do. And segue into this is, do you see with your mind's eye the project totality even before you begin? You know, that's interesting. Sometimes you can see it. Sometimes, like I was just today, went to look at a new project we're doing in Tivoli, New York, across in Dutchess County, and it's for an artist who's very renowned, and uh, she wants to put this building, and right now it's just a vacant lot. It's just, or, you know, open field. So I went out there, and, you know, I walked around with her, and you wave your arms around, and you pretend that you'll see a tree over there. That's about 20 feet high, so it's about that high, and you pull strings. And so I tried to envision it with her and myself, so I can kind of see, once it's done, will it fit? 
it's a beautiful, beautiful area. So you don't want to put a building that's going to look odd. And it had these great views. And so I said, ah, let's make the end of the building all glass. It's her studio. You could be working, look at the view. And, you know, this is the way you bring in the trucks to bring your material. So, yes, you sort of put it together. And then on a more micro level, when I go into apartments uh, in the city, which we've done over, God, 250 of them, you have to kind of see how to get it all to work in there. But, so every once in a while, you can see it. Other times, you have to work on it. It's, um, what did Paul Simon say, that his, uh, his creativity was 10% inspiration, 90% perspiration? Yes, that's <laughs> so right. So it's sort of like you struggle at it, but I guess the better way to put it is you know when it's right. You draw, you draw, you draw, you walk around, you look, and it will, the answer will come. You just have to be patient. It's like trying to write an essay. You know, you'll, you'll write 20 pages and then you'll do one page brilliant a week later when you've got your mind on true. it. Yeah, but true. that's, so yeah, so you can, sometimes it does come right away and that's always fun. Speaking of drawing, do you still draw by hand? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. No, I walk around the job sites and I put sketches on all the walls of details. I'm telling the guys what to do. And the the worst day of the whole job is when they prime all the walls and my my drawings are gone. <laughs> so I said, guys, oh, no. see now with the beautiful thing, now with iPhones you can take a quick photo of it and yeah. so the electrician knows how to lay out his lights, the plumber knows how to, you know, center his uh, his roughings. But yeah, it, it is funny because people, you know, I'm sketching, I always carry a pad of paper with me because, you know, our industry is all uh, AutoCAD, right. like electronic drafting, and Revit, 3D drafting, which is phenomenal, and I'm so-so at it, but give me a pen and paper, and I will draw you a little perspective of what you're going to see and try to make you understand it and, uh, and give it some flavor so that you feel like you got it. But sometimes you got to go wave your arms around <laughs> and things like that. Andrew, I'm going to ask you a question right at this point. Because you draw, but because you started your career without Rivet, without AutoCAD, so now when you have your younger, newer hires in, is there a disconnect where there's ways that you're working with your paper and pencil and drawing on the walls? Do they actually... Anyway, how how do you all deal with that? Because there was just a big disconnect from the age of information to those of us that didn't start there. And you are 100% correct because... There are people that think that the computer graphics is the gospel. And I've seen huge mistakes because it's only as good as the data you input. Yes. And so you can make, you know, especially with 3D, you see walls coming out of windows and stuff. But yes, I encourage everybody in this office to draw by hand. I used to teach a night course at the local college where I would, it was all CAD, but I'd make people sketch it by hand first. And understand what's a square, what's a circle, what's a how do you how do you block something out so that it makes sense? And uh, I, I would make that almost and it's like walking before running. You know, it makes them think. Okay, did did I do this correctly? Did I figure this out? Because you can sit there and digitize something and throw in numbers and think it's correct. Or uh, the, here's the greatest example: they'll draw a facade of a building. And then they'll draw another facade of a building, but they'll never know what the connection between the two is. There was nothing that was done three-dimensionally. And they may have huge disconnects of a trim turning the corner or a, a window being out of shape when you see the window around the corner in the wrong place. And so I kind of say, 
see it in 3D and sketch it by hand, learn how to make a little vignette or a perspective by hand so you can not only show who you're talking to about it, but you can understand it yourself. That's really important. Well Brain said. Yes. Well, architecture education, I worry it's suffering. This is true. Yeah. But do you draw by hand? Oh, I do draw by hand. But I'm old. It's great. <laughs> and write, <laughs> and write handlet written notes. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yes. It's wonderful because you put a lot of expression in the way you write a handwritten note. In product design at Stanford, we would always be taught because your brain can connect with your hand faster than it can ever connect with what the computer's doing that you think it can do for you. Your brain is immediately, you know, connected in your drawing. And so you get that idea down, you know, it's like a croquis and it's this there. Yeah, it's one. And now it's locked in, so go ahead. Yeah, that's fine, Charlotte. I'm glad you asked the question. How do you work with the clients that you had? Is it is it your past history? Is it kind of a bit of you reaching out, being a part of the community you shared that you, you also taught? How do they understand the value you bring and actually decide to bring uh, right architects into their uh, projects? Well, we're very lucky. Most of the people I'm working with now, I've worked with for anywhere from 17 to 25 years. So I'm passed through the family. I, they come up with another project. I'm the go-to guy. But an interesting little story is my first big Upper East Side, big apartment in New York City, I was just walking down the street. I think it was 85th Street. And I'm walking by this building. I have, we used to have tubes of drawings that you would, you know, hang over your shoulder. So I'm walking along, and this guy is standing in front of this very nice Park Avenue building. He says, Are you the architect? And I look at him. I don't know him from Adam. I said, Sure, I'm the architect. <laughs> I had nothing to lose. I had no reason. So as we're going up the elevator in this fancy building, he realizes I'm not the architect he was waiting for. But he asked me, he said he was frustrated. He had to get back to his office. He says, I need you to go into the kitchen department and see if the vents work because I love to cook and I want to make sure the vent is clear and all that. Great. I said, no problem. <laughs> we get to the floor, knock on the door, opens up, and there's this huge staircase. I'm looking at this place. I said, this place is a duplex. And I'm like, oh, my God. And... um we're walking in, and the owners are there, and they're very guarded. And so it's Neil Sadaka. Actually, he's sitting there looking at me, and uh, and I'm thinking he was very pleasant. And I, you know, look at this thing, and he gives me the guy gives me his card. I have to go to the office, and I check the venting and all that, and I find out through the super of the building that Neil Sadaka's lost, you know, uh, for tax reasons, he's lost his apartment. Blah blah blah. But anyway, so it was chance, and well, this guy was so happy with that I gave him an answer quickly. He hired me. I did his apartment, his daughter's apartment, his son's apartment, their country home, his partner's apartment. So, you know, sometimes it's fate. You meet somebody, and if you do a good job, and if you're honest, uh, they will come back. And so I've been very, I mean, that was back in the late 80s, so it was right in the beginning. But 99% of our work is referral or the same clients. So it's it's sort of very comfortable, and it makes I don't have to market very hard. Every once in a while, you always have to sort of get the word out. I'm actually Sophia, who I think reached out to you guys yes. in our office, said you know we need to let more people 
know what we do. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> but then I said, then we may get really busy. That may, that'll be no fun. <laughs> oh, no. Interesting that you, you're, uh, I mean, it sounds tongue-in-cheek, but how much percentage would you, uh, if you've ever even done it, a mental exercise, of how much, what's the percentage of your work is actually drawing, design, being engaged with the actual building of the project, and then how much is actually interfacing with people? Oh my God! It's besides construction, design, and architecture. We also are therapists. A lot of the times, the clients are calling me at eleven o'clock at night, complaining about life, and we work through it, and which is no problem because I kind of enjoy. So it's it's a little bit of everything. It's sort of like you know, think of your nearest relative and you who you like. And who you're going to spend time with. Because when we do a project, it's an adventure. You're going to be with this person for one, two, maybe four or five years. You're going to be pulling their wants out of them. You're going to be creating it for them. And you want the greatest, you know, victory is a smile at the end. So it's a little bit of everything. I mean, I probably spend most of the time on the construction management because you're working with, you know, 20, 30 trades. Uh, getting the client's feedback. In New York City, there's an enormous amount of time spent on getting approvals and permits. You have to go through the board, the co-op board architect, and then you have to go through the co-op board, and then you have to go through the managing agent, then the Department of Buildings. I sometimes tell clients, half your fee spent to me is just getting an approval to do it, and then the work will go much faster. That could take months. I've been six months just trying to get an approval to renovate a small apartment. I don't know how it is out west, but I do know you probably have very strong historic boards correct. and environmentally correct and, you know, uh, energy conscious boards and community boards that probably want to say what are you doing in a certain part of, of the valley or the Bay Area. Yeah. So um, it's the same kind of thing, but it's kind of hard to break out, you know, what's what because everyone's a little different. Terrific. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. The California Water Impact Network, or CWIN, W-I-N, is a nonprofit organization that works to ensure equitable and environmentally sensitive use of California's water. Recent goals have included ensuring the adequate water flows through the San Francisco Bay Delta and upstream rivers, stopping poor irrigation practices, which can waste water and poison our land, waterways and wildlife, and ensuring that water resources are allocated fairly. If you'd like to become a member, donate, or volunteer, go to c-win.org. We're talking today with Andrew Wright, president of Wright Architects in Kingston, New York. For more information, you can visit wrightarchitectsplc.com. Again, wrightarchitectsplc.com. LC.com. Andrew, you know, another comment on your website is if you really take time, I notice objectively and read through it, it's just a matter of deciding, okay, let's, when do we start? And right, why I say that is because I notice very simple yet descriptive process on your website. Is that by design? I mean, it's, it's not flashy. Uh, yeah, maybe you do or don't want flashy, but it's very descriptive if you take the time to read through it about what it is you do, how it's going to work, and what the experience may be like. And that's not easy to do on a static website. 
Well, thank you, Tom. That's actually the greatest compliment because, yes, we all read people's bios and stuff, and they go on. They're either totally, oh, without personality, black and white, and more technical, or they just go on too much. And we really wanted to be clear and concise because I'm not a big reader. I'd rather draw. I'd rather talk to you in pictures than, you know, write something. But it's a... Um, when you, you want to get the message out, you don't want to say too much, too little. So that's a wonderful compliment. I'm going to pass it on to my staff. They did <laughs> okay. good. Yeah, it was, it was an observation. You know, obviously, I really appreciate and value what it is that you do, Andrew. As I said earlier, the range in particular. But going through, uh, again, the website, it was just remarkable. Like, my goodness, you got all the intel you need right here and there. If you set aside, because most people, I think the statistics of, uh, from a number of sources have stated that vast majority of people spend less than eight seconds on a website. And uh, this actually, I was in, felt invited to read the website and I read through it and went, wow, you know what? I have a great understanding. If I was looking for a project, Andrew would definitely be, you know, on the short list right away. I wouldn't have to find out what you need to do. And, and uh, you know, other architects out there listening, maybe it's going to go back to your website and take a look. But it makes, uh, again, where you say it, the greatest victory is a smile. It really is. It really is. I mean, anyone in what you do, when you get a um, an acknowledgement, a positive acknowledgement, we, we don't get much. I mean, obviously, you want to be paid for your work, and that's one sort of acknowledgement and all that. But when somebody, we, we touch lives, and, and other professions do too, but in an architect, because we do predominantly residential, which is not a great business plan because commercial is much more lucrative, and I've done a ton of it. But when you do somebody's house and you give them what they want, what they need, or what they seek, it's a great feeling. It really is. Kind of hard to describe, but it, it's just wonderful. Like, now, you're an architect, Tom, or you're... Uh, no, I, I work in uh, public relations, well, you're doing well. Ar- uh, thank you. And architecture aficionado. And that's why we have the show is because I felt that the architects and designers and builders just do not get the recognition that they, uh, they ought to. And I think that you, you have such a tremendous impact on a positive community and, and the lives of the people in the community. Yeah. And so, we do. Hence and you can really make a big difference. You can really make a big difference. Urban planning all the way through and preservation, historic preservation. I'm a big believer in that. Uh, here in Kingston and down in New York City, I've restored many brownstones. And I really am proud of that. Yeah, you ought to be. But you know what? Here, here's another thing I'll touch on for, our, for your audience is as simple and as concise as, uh, you know, whether it's your website or even your work or even the description, there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into making something so simple. Do you, you agree? Maybe you, you disagree. No, I agree 100%. 100%. The simpler, the harder. That is a truism across, the, it's like songs or music. You know, you listen to a simple little song, a Beatles song, and you go, Wow. And it was so simple. It's three chords. It's just, and it takes a lot of work. Yes. And is that almost in all facets of your, uh, of your profession that you've experienced? It, I guess it is. You get lucky sometimes when you hit it <laughs> the lucky. first time. You do. I mean, you okay. kind of find, you get the bead correctly. 
you understand what they want, you can achieve it. But, you know, there's a lot of people that want to, you know, hang buildings from the sky or do something that it's just not going to work. My favorite is the people who work out of their 8,000 square foot mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut, into their 2,000 square foot apartment in the city, and they don't want to get rid of any of their furniture. <laughs> you can imagine. It starts to look like an antique warehouse or something. But, you know, you just have to kind of slowly ease them into the reality that they have to let it go. But it's, you know, but when you do it right, you convince them to fit the proportions and to make the most of the room and the light and the colors. And together you do it. You don't just do it by, you don't talk at them, you talk with them. You then create a, a harmony. And when it's done, you think, why did that? That was a lot of work, but boy, it, it was worth it. Yeah. Andrew, how do you think that the architectural profession and all of us out there that care about history, how can we prevent even like the houses that you're building now not be torn down like was happening in the 60s when they would be tearing down stone houses that were probably constructed as well or even better than many houses across America. And, you know, now they're gone and we lost that history and they could be reused, which is actually the definition of, of sustainability. And so what do you do in your own houses? Do you think about like, well, I think this can last definitely for a hundred years or more, Cambridge has there been now for now 800 years. Yeah, talk about that, the sustainability sense of things. Well, what I do, and I have a little trick, I build like a brick poop house, so they're just <laughs> too cheap to knock it down. <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> well, if you build, uh, actually, that, that's a very good point, because if you build growth and flexibility into the design, because... You know, a typical house will have many stories in its life. Many families will come and go through it. And they'll want four bathrooms and they want two bathrooms. They want a big kitchen, they want a small kitchen. So you watch, you know, these the, the life of a building, you know, go through these different stages. So if you build too specific, it's going to probably have a limited life. If you build with some sort of bigger idea of these are just nice rooms that could be anything. This could be a living room, it could be a bedroom, it could be a kitchen, it could be whatever, it could be an office. A lot of the buildings in Uptown Kingston were all homes. Well, now they're offices and apartments, and they've had these wonderful histories. I love to kind of trace it if I can find it. Another example is in the New York City apartments. The average life of an interior of a one or two bedroom apartment is five years. You'll know that that couple will move in five years. They'll get new bathrooms, new kitchens. I can't tell you how many times I went in and ripped out brand new equipment because the new client wanted blah, 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 something different. Oh, my goodness. So if you if you build really a nice place on a nice site and you respect the nature of it, the view, the wind, the sun, it's going to stay there a while. It's going to stay there a while. And we usually, we do, because I have a civil engineering background, I do build very solid. There's no squeaky, no cracks, no problems. Um, we put a lot of attention into the detailing of keeping it dry, comfortable, and uh, beautiful. And wow. low maintenance. That's a big one. Low maintenance. <laughs> low maintenance, absolutely. No, no one maintains their homes. <laughs> they, you know, that's uh, something they don't think about. Can you share with us a story, or at least one that comes to mind, Andrew, of a project that looked really 
quite daunting at the beginning and it just turned beautiful. I'm sure I'll say all your projects, but any one or two in particular that fit that description. Oh God, there've been many, you know, I can put a a different twist on that. Okay. please. I would, you know, you have to grow in any industry. So you take risks. There are many people that just get good at one thing and that's all they do. So they stay in the safety zone. So the first time I did a large McMansion, I call them, I was terrified. This isn't going to work. I was, oh, my God, I'll be halfway through it. I'd never done anything like that. Well, then it got done. And I said, I did it. And it came out okay. But I made a few things I would have liked to change because I was learning that. Then when I did the first brownstone, same thing. When I did the first complex of buildings, the first geothermal, the first – you go into these projects – the microgrid we just finished. I was hired to do a net zero energy project. Much, you know, complicated, but you had the utility company, so if you mess up, you're good. It turned into a microgrid. I am now, I've cut the cord, I am alone. I'm, this is like I have no backup. And I've got a 20,000 foot house, I've got guest houses, I've got kids, they have parties, they entertain. You can't fail. So, more from the standpoint of can I do it? So you got to really reach deep inside and say no, and I quit. No, <laughs> but the uh, but you do it. You you find ways, and you just think I'm going to get through this. And so yes, it can be quite daunting in the beginning, but you keep researching, you keep looking. You you're going to make mistakes. You try and get them all straightened out. Make sure that you go in intelligently. And from an, even from an aesthetic standpoint, Tom, it's, it's, you can go in and say, I'm going to risk something here, a proportion, a color, a shape. Uh, the brownstone I'm doing in the city right now, I have this light well coming through this brownstone because these you know, townhouses in the city of New York are very dark in the middle. You have a little facade on the street. You have some windows in the back, but you're trapped between two buildings. So you have no light in the bowels of the house. So inevitably, I try to always get a light well somewhere. And then you got to sculpt it. And are you going to get enough light? So we try and make little models and we study it because it's a very expensive art form we're doing. And you can't really say, oops, I kind of made a half million dollar boo-boo. Can we redo that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so you have to be sure that it's going to work. And when it does, though, and you're walking through in the middle of this beautiful curved stair with light coming down it and stained glass windows in the middle, it's just, it works. But yes, it's been many instances where I can't think, well, I've mentioned a few, but you, you, you dive in, you do the best you do, and knock on wood. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> <I've done okay>. <laughs> <laughs> I, heard, I heard that, Andrew. <laughs> Speaking of that lighting, how... How well we know lighting is important in architecture, but to you, how much? If you uh, even put a number to it, you can tell I'm a bit analytical. To the importance of lighting in a space, to you. Well, natural light, if you can, always get it. Maybe be smart about it. Don't overdo it. Don't underdo it. If I'm down south, I've done work in the Caribbean. You know, be careful. You know, you can overheat. And then you do the artificial lighting, which is just as important. And I am such a fan of LEDs now because of what I can do with the multiple colors and the dimming. It's, it has no heat gain. Uh, MR16 bulbs and halogens were the thing before, but they created a lot of heat and overloaded your air conditioning. And if you were near them, 
they weren't that comfortable. Now uh, you can get LEDs in candelabra-shaped light bulbs, regular light bulbs. Um, um, I'm looking at my office ceiling. I have two-by-two two LED panels that are beautiful, and they give me lots of light, and they're they're uh, they're comforting for, for whatever word. You know, you're not feeling like you're in some artificial space. So it's a combination of all that. But I'm my great. I'm a greatest proponent is natural light. Excellent. That's, that's great stuff if you can control that and bring it in. <laughs> yeah. How about the materials you choose? Is it, are you constantly previewing the sustainable type of materials or materials that you favor or looking at them? Actually, yeah. On my desk, I've got a couple of magazines that are always publishing what's new in technologies and in materials and pavers and siding and insulation, uh, roofing, because you get to know certain products that you know that's tried and true. That'll always work. Bluestone lintels, brick veneers always work uh, if they're well-pointed and well have good breathing. We use now closed-cell rigid spray foam insulation or aircrete, which is made from seaweed. There's certain things that this will always work for me. I put acousta rock around the bathrooms in every house because it kills all the high frequencies, so you have more privacy. We double sheetrock both sides of every wall. We do a lot of detailing that used to be pre-war detailing in apartments in New York City where I dropped the slab in a bathroom so the pipes are above the concrete in a cinder fill, a 10-inch cinder fill, so that you not only have an acoustical break where no one can hear it flush below, but if you know you want to move it around, you can do it without interfering uh, with the lower floor. I mean, there's a million little techniques and, and things you learn as you go through this that that's a good tile. That's a good window. I use laminate glass in all exterior windows. It cuts all your UV, cuts down the sound, much better for your energy conservation, and now it's relatively inexpensive. It's a regular thing. So there's just, you know, I'm sure out where you guys are, if you're in an apartment near a bus lane or a busy highway, exactly. If you put laminate glass up, you will cut so much of it. My greatest victory is this geothermal residence I did in the city. I put laminate glass in all the windows and also these huge skylights in an internal atrium, one-inch thick laminate glass. The greatest compliment I got from this client, who's been a friend and a partner of mine for in business for 25 years, was he's standing in the living room. There was he, we both looked up. There was a helicopter hovering, you know, one of those traffic things. And he looked up, and we couldn't hear a thing. And he looked at me and said, thank you. It's quiet. Wow. So that's you can do a lot with certain techniques you learn as you go. And uh, I've learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like, you know what else is interesting, Andrew, is it sounds like you're still new. <laughs> I know you're experienced, but it, it sounds like you just got started because there's a, I, I sense there's a, an enthusiasm. I'm a kid in a candy shop. Oh. I enjoy, <laughs> I love learning new things. If, if I have a carpenter or a technician show me a new way of doing something, because I build a lot, I built three of my own homes, nights and weekends and clomping away, and we got a new house on the Hudson River, which I'm going to start working on probably in the fall, because it's great therapy to you know get your tools on and go work. But it is, uh, when you learn how to do something better or you learn that this is a better product or you, you meet, especially in the sustainable, that industry, it's in its infancy. So it is like the cell phones. Every 
Well, computers, every few months, it turns a new page. It goes to another accomplishment. Batteries are cheaper. Inverters are more readily available. Uh, the interface and the controllers are stuff you can now readily get. It's not some specialized proprietary thing. So it's ever-changing, which for me makes it ever-exciting. And so it's going to always be. Super. This is the Modern Architect, KZSU, 90.1 FM, Stanford. Teach for America is a national core of outstanding recent college graduates and professionals who commit to teaching for two years in urban and rural public schools in lower-income areas nationwide. If you're a college senior interested in being a part of this core, or if you'd like to help support the program, visit teachforamerica.org. We're talking today with Andrew Wright, president of Wright Architects in Kingston, New York. For more information, feel free to visit WrightArchitectsPLLC.com. Again, WrightArchitectsPLLC.com. Andrew, with um, architecture and uh, the construction business constantly evolving, the expectations for architects and builders evolve as well. What's what's changed in your experience over the last, say, five five or so years? That's interesting. The in the East Coast, they have gotten a lot more restrictive on what an architect can and cannot sign off on. That's more from a code standpoint, more from you know a legality standpoint, but I think the biggest from, let's go to the aesthetic and the fun part. When you had a Zahid doing her crazy curvilinear forms and you have a Frank Gehry doing his Balboa and then changing the, the, the whole paradigm of not a structure as a square, stable looking thing, but an amorphic fluid flying around which was actually the the Australian Opera House is one of the first that tried to do that with this kind of fluid thing on the bay in Sydney. But I actually went there and I walked inside and the interior was like really bad because they hadn't quite figured out how to transform that beauty of the outside into the inside. And so now it's happening. And yes, computers help, CAD helps. You can do these crazy shop drawings and window walls. And so that's probably the fun part is that they've broken molds of having it has to be this way it needs a footing it needs this it needs that it has to stack they said screw that let it go this way let it go that way let it look like the wind is blowing around in new york city we have these new super tall buildings which are the weirdest looking things on the on the skyline you're looking at normal buildings and this one thing is shooting up like a straw and you said what on earth you know i would not want to be in that penthouse (laughs) be whipped around like a riding bull in a cowboy bar but um they're there and it does work and it does move and so technology's changed i don't want to be there when it falls down but it's uh you know this is what's going on our industry is that they've kind of broken the mold now between you and i i think it's going to come back to more traditional i think this is sort of like when everything went modern then it went neoclassical then it went classical now it's all over the place because you know it's hard to have usable spaces but they're beautiful sculptures these these amorphic things that are coming out and to be able to build them is amazing you know, inevitably someone's going to want to come back to a nice, friendly entrance with a nice, cozy interior and relax. Or maybe that'll be their homes. But that's kind of where I see it going. You know, if you look at architectural history, it goes up and down. 
it goes to very crazy, then it goes back to sane, then it goes very crazy, then it goes to sane. It's like the stock market. (laughs) Andrew, I have to give you a big hug for saying that because, you know, I think there's many people think that that they just can't push the edge of modern, that there's always something new out there. But history's proven that all design and all civilizations go through five design phases, which is primitive, severe, broke, and classical, and then broke, and then mannerism. And if you don't dial it back to classical, you fall off the edge into the abyss, and you have to start over at primitivism. So I have to really embrace you for saying that, because it is true. I think that we're we're going to swing back to just some... You know, classical, that's sort of like I can find the front door to my house today. (laughs) I think so. I mean, look at it. We've been doing the, you know, there's the Palladio's four books of architecture, Vitruvius. I mean, these things go back to what, a thousand BC, and then we're still utilizing them somewhere. There you go. I pull them out. And you grab, how do I do that pediment? How do I do the, the proportions are everything when you're doing something in a classical motif. If you get it wrong, it looks like a, you know, a size two shoe on a size 10 foot, you know, barely fits on the toe. So you, you, you really have to, and I learned this from a great classicist out here on the East Coast named Richard Cameron, who I worked with. I was lucky enough to work with him on two or three projects where he helped me fine-tune the pediments and the arches. And some of those pictures you see on our website, you'll see these beautiful, beautifully done interiors with the arches and the architraves. And that was Richard's brilliance. He came in and I said, you know, I know my limitations. Richard, this is your ballywick. Show me how to get them, you know, get it right. And he did. So that's another thing that makes us... And actually, there's another thing I have to say about our success is I have had the luck of working with really good teams over the years. Is it by selection, by kind of uh, introduction, both? A combination. You meet people. Richard, I met because I was starting to design that geothermal residence, and my client knew someone who knew something. And he said, you know, this is guy who could do, I was struggling with the interior atrium. So he came to me and said, hey, can I let this guy, Richard, just do a sketch? And he showed it to me, and he says, if you don't like it, no problem. We can throw it out. We'll go ahead with your ideas. And I looked at it, and it was brilliant. And I said, I've got to work with this guy. I mean, you you got to be strong enough to know when someone's better than you, and then you're really going to have a good product because nobody can work in a vacuum. And so I've been lucky to have... Well, I guess it's the luck to find people I was able to work with and meet them and, and be able to do something with them. So it's a uh, it's a good thing, and that's what helps. So you, the stuff you look at you know, uh, on our website is a combination of me, them, the media, the publications, the clients. You know, they come up with ideas as well, and that's what makes it fun. Awesome. Andrew... Is there anything that we may not have covered? Well, this, uh, we can go on for hours, I think. But anything in particular for our, with uh, with your show today that uh, you'd like to share with the uh, with your audience that we may not have uh, touched on or spoken about? I'll close with this: the the architecture is an art form, and it's a lovely one. And for me, if you're a person who likes buildings, who likes the adventure of walking through them, who likes to you know, tinker and build and watch things go together. It's a great profession. And it can be a a, a lucrative one. It could be a very good living. 
And, you know, but it's not for everybody. It's like I'd be a lousy doctor uh, and even a worse lawyer because, unfortunately, I do not know how to lie. But, um, but it's one of these things where, you know, everyone finds their place. I mean, you, you have your show and you bring a lot of people to the public, which I want to thank you for because, oh, you know, you. architects don't get a lot of publicity we get we get published but the circulation of our magazines is rather small comparatively and a uh, few people who are heroes out of the Pritzkers student families come up and they award things and there's you know some promotion but I when I heard about uh, what you're doing out there Tom I said this is great oh, thank you very much it, it gives everyone a chance to do this that's really it it's it's a fun thing and if you're thinking about it do it Frank, uh, what was it? Uh, Philip Johnson went to school for architecture when he was 50 years old, and being who he was, as opposed to presenting his thesis project, he built it. That was his glass house. <laughs> oh, what great! So it can be done at all times. Andrew, it's been an honor and a real pleasure having you on our show today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tom, and be well. Thank you. You've been listening to the Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dior. Our guest today has been Andrew Wright. Andrew is the president of Wright Architects since 1986 in Kingston, New York. Wright Architects specializes in architecture and construction assistance of homes, offices, institutional buildings, sustainable projects, and developments across the United States, Virgin Islands, and abroad. Their projects range from uh, elegant small additions and renovations to large, complex new buildings since their inception, they've demonstrated a, uh, a truly full spectrum of uh, facilities from purchase of property to interior design. For more information, feel free to visit WrightArchitectsPLLC.com. Again, WrightArchitectsPLLC.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at KZSU Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California, and on location throughout California. Today, the recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Hyagi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews with an S, kzsu.stanford.edu. Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals. Use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. <laughs>